we're going to kick off with the book of Job. And that's because, presumably, the book of Job was the first book written. And there's a really good reason why it's the first book that's written. So, without any other further introductions, let me get us started with a word of prayer. Lord God, your plan is unfathomable. And the fact that we even have the Bible in front of us is an immense blessing that is beyond really our comprehension. Lord, we are so grateful that we have the treasure of your word in front of us. That we can hear your words directly. We can hear your plan We know what it is that you require of us. But we also know the plan that you have to restore creation to its right place. Lord, we're so thankful that we get to be a part of that. And that we get to understand that and know that. And what we will be talking about today is the story of a man wrestling with his friends not understanding all of these things yet. And so, Lord God, help us to place our feet into the shoes of those who didn't fully have all of the understanding. They didn't have all of the knowledge and all of the wisdom that we have today. Help us to grasp that and understand that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was preparing for this Job lecture today, and I realized this one is so important that we're going to actually spend two sessions on this. Uh, There are other books of the Bible that we could do that as well, but I figured that this one was that much important that we're going to have to do that. We're going to have to do two. All right, so so buckle up with me. We're going to take a ride through Job, and... Because we're going to do it in two sessions, I feel like I can take a little bit more time to set the foundation for um, the the story of the Bible and where it begins in Job. But to get started, we're going to start with just some preliminary things related to Job. So there's Job. Starting with Job. And let's talk about, first off, the title of the book, Job. Okay. Job, and, and this is true with uh, books of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, uh, a book's title often is it's characterized sometimes around a person or it's characterized around some kind of a theme or something like that. Uh, a lot of times when it's characterized around a person, it has significance and meaning into the book. That's really interesting. You can actually trace that with all of the prophets uh, every one of the prophets, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then, of course, you get into the smaller books like Hosea and Zephaniah and Haggai and so forth. They all have names, but those names have huge implication into their prophetic ministries. And so that actually ties into the book, and there's actually a theme of the meaning of their name in the book. It doesn't necessarily mean it's just the like it's like the primary theme, but it plays into the primary theme, which is really interesting. With Job, does anybody know what the name Job actually means? Persecuted. Persecuted? Okay, we're kind of getting close. 
Yeah. It, it means enemy. <laughs> like, why would you name your child enemy? All right. It's, it's a, a derivation off of the word um, uh, oyev, but it's kind of flipped around in Hebrew and it's eov. And it has this idea of enemy. And that's significant to this book. You're like, really? Why would that have anything to do with Job? Because one of the key ideas here is who is the real enemy in this book? Is it God? Because Job is trying to put God on trial, right? Or is it Job? Is he the real enemy? Now, the tendency in Job, we tend to approach Job, well, not we maybe, but a lot of people tend to think about Job as kind of like a play, kind of like a a story, Uh, mostly perhaps historical, but embellished, exaggerated. It's very artistic. There's a lot of... uh, excellent metaphors and imagery and puns and uh, so there's no way that all of that was really true it's kind of more of an embellishment that kind of a thing that's how a lot of people today at least in modern evangelical circles tend to think about it at least kind of more in um, less conservative camps but we know that uh, this is historical because uh, the Bible actually talks about Job as a real person. James chapter 5, verse 11, talks about Job. You've heard of the endurance of Job, James says. And then also, Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, mentions Noah, Daniel, and Job as real people. As if Job is just like Daniel. He's just like uh, Noah. And so he's a real person. Now, Job begins with narrative, and that's very interesting because, yes, a lot of the book is poetic, a lot of the book is artistic in in one sense, but because it begins with narrative, we are supposed to take this book historically as a real event. That's a really important thing. Uh, Genesis is kind of the same way, right? It's narrative. But even at the beginning, you have the creation week. It's not necessarily poetry as much as it's elevated artistic narrative. But it's communicated with narrative features, narrative elements, narrative terms. And that's important uh, because we are to take it historically. Job is also unique in wisdom literature that we have in the Bible. Wisdom literature being, of course, you know, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, somewhat of Ecclesiastes, I guess you could say. Job is unique in wisdom literature in that it focuses on one individual person and his story. You know, a godly person using his wisdom, uh, you could say, imperfectly to navigate his troubles. Oh, but there's so much more than just that. We tend to approach Job as, ah, this is the book about suffering, and how, how do I deal with my suffering? If you think that that's what Job is primarily about, you don't actually understand what Job is really about. And we're going to talk about that today. It's not about, ultimately, suffering. 
You're like, oh no, you're messing with my theology. Sorry. All right. But I think you'll really appreciate this. This will, this will be helpful. Let's talk about the who. Let's talk about the who. This would be the authorship and the audience. We'll start with the authorship. Who's, who's the author? Now, obviously, if, you know, a lot of times with the book of the Bible, like a, pro, a prophetic book, if it's called Zechariah, then the author would be Zechariah, right? So if it's called Job, then the author would be Job, right? Probably not. Probably not in this case. Why? Because there's a lot of things written in this book that Job didn't understand in his life. And things that are revealed that he could not have known. And you're like, well, maybe he learned about them after the fact. What you have to understand is once you understand the book of Job, if he learns about it after the fact, it defeats the whole purpose of the book. It defeats the whole purpose of the book. The whole point is that Job is never supposed to know what happened. That's the point. Okay? We also could maybe say, maybe Moses wrote this. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. Maybe he wrote it. And there is a minority view that holds to this. But a couple problems with that as well. The Hebrew text doesn't really fit the style of the Hebrew in Moses' day. In fact, there are frequent uses of other languages that are introduced into Job far more than other Old Testament books, uh, including uh, the most, probably the most common one that gets introduced in Old Testament books, which is Aramaic. And a lot of times you'll hear this when you're reading liberal scholarship. There's Aramaic in the book. Therefore, it must have been written really, really late, like during the exile period or something like that, right? The problem is, is that Aramaic actually precedes Hebrew. They just don't want to tell you that. Um, and you know this, because in Genesis, Laban speaks to Jacob in Aramaic. It actually is in written in Aramaic in Genesis. In Genesis 31, I think it's verse 47. Because they set up this pillar, this testimony that between the two of them as a testimony that you know I'm not going to trouble you or lie to you anymore and you're not going to lie to me anymore that kind of a thing and here's our this pillar here and Laban calls it stone pile of testimony stone pile witness uh, stone pile and Jacob calls it a witness uh, stone pile as well so they both call it the same thing but they use two different terms for it one is in Aramaic and the other one's in Hebrew and Laban was clearly speaking in Aramaic. It was already a fully established language by the point of Jacob's time. That is much, much, much earlier than the exilic period. (coughs) The prevailing view of authorship for Job is that somebody wrote it during Solomon's period. Okay? A later, this would again be a later time. So hundreds of years later, someone took the story and wrote it. Now, this is often true in conservative scholarship as well. A lot of conservatives take this view, and you're like, well, how could they take that view? Well, they believe that the story literally happened historically in the past, and then somebody by oral tradition or um, faithful oral tradition or some kind of written documentation external to the Bible passed it down, and then they wrote this story and elevated its artistic 
um, communication back and forth, that kind of a thing. I don't hold to that view. I actually tend to think that whenever you have a book of the Bible, wherever it, it historically ends is probably about when it was written. And I'm going to make a case for the fact that there's something else going on here. And that is, and I'm sorry that the that is so small and unreadable, but we're going to work on that and see if we can get that a little bit better. Maybe make it a little bit bigger text or something. Um, I'm going to argue that this man named Elihu, who appears in Job chapter 32, is the author of this book. He's the author. And I'm not the only one that holds this view. There's a lot of people in our camp that actually hold this view. And there's several reasons why. There's several reasons why this makes for a really strong case. Number one, he has a Hebrew name. He has a Hebrew name. That's interesting because the other three friends don't have Hebrew names. Oh, we have another Hebrew character all of a sudden appear in the book. Now, Job has a Hebrew name as well. But if Job didn't write it, then you have this other strange character who literally comes out of nowhere. Who are you? Oh, you've been sitting here this whole time? He has a Hebrew name, and that is interesting. His credentials are extensive. Turn your Bibles over to Job chapter 32. Job 32. Job 32, verse 1. This is where Elihu, like, all of a sudden just shows up out of nowhere. It says, then these three men, they stopped answering Job. Okay, we're done. They stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Verse 2. Then the anger of Elihu, the son of Barachel and uh, the Buzite, from the family of Ram, his anger burned against Job because he justified his soul before God. Now he appears on the scene. And notice what it says about him. Not like Eliphaz. We don't hear this about Eliphaz. We don't hear this about the other friends, Bildad and Zophar. But you get background information about Elihu. He is the son of Barachel. He is a Buzite. He's from the family of Ram. That's three pieces of information that would show you somebody knows this guy really, really well and wants you to know his connection point. There's a reason for that. There's got to be a reason for that. Elihu's is related to, to Booz. You're like, why do you pronounce it? Booz isn't Buzz. Well, I mean... Technically, in Hebrew, you pronounce it as booze. Um, Genesis 22. If you, if you look over at Genesis 22 for a second. Genesis 22, verse 21. This is really interesting. If you back up, actually, to verse 20. It says, after these things, it was told to Abraham, saying, Hey, behold, Milcah... Has, she has also given birth to children or to sons, to, to Nahor, your brother. And here are the sons. Uz. Now, it might say Uz in your text. Technically, it's pronounced Uts. But it's Uz. Doesn't that sound familiar, though? Yeah. Isn't Uz in Job? 
it's the place, right? That's interesting. A lot of times they would name a place after the person who founded the city or had some kind of significant impact there. Uz, his firstborn. Booz, his brother. And Kemuel, the father of... And what's that name? Al-Ram. You hear Ram? See, back in Job 32, he is from the family of Ram. Which also sounds like Avram. Abram. That's the same terminology. It seems pretty clear that Elihu has a direct connection to Abraham and to his family. So that's, it's not just one small connection. We've got multiple connections of multiple names piecing this together. And I love this part. Oh, sorry. Even, even it apologized. It says sorry. There's a problem. Okay, there we go. This is interesting because... Oh, they didn't put that one on there. Sorry, related to, to Booz and to Ram. This is interesting, is that Elihu makes what's called a cameo appearance in the book. He makes a cameo appearance. <laughs> uh, the best illustration that I could think of, and I know that this is kind of more for the younger generation, but is in the Marvel movies, the creator, Stan Lee, appears in almost every film. Yes? You know this, right? That's called a cameo appearance. The Bible does this more often than it may be first assumed. For instance, John does this in John, without mentioning his name, right? The one whom Jesus loved. Yeah? Cameo appearance. Not wanting to mention his name. Mark, I believe, does this toward the end of the book. There was this random story of a man who's following Jesus as he's being taken into the hands of the, the chief priests. And they tried to catch him, and they grabbed his cloak. And they grabbed his cloak, but he was able to escape away. It's like, what is that story doing there? The only explanation, which is, seems to be pretty common in literature like this, is that that's Mark. He's talking about himself. I was there that night. It's a cameo appearance. Luke does this too implicitly in, in the book of Acts where he starts talking about, then all of a sudden he starts talking about we. Then we went here to this city and then we got on a ship and then went over here to this place. Wait, why did you just start using we? Why didn't you just say, well, then Paul and his people went here and then they went there because he was there. It's a cameo appearance. Elihu, I would argue appears out of nowhere because he's making a cameo appearance. On top of that, Elihu is not. This is overlooked, I think. As I've like looked into this with other people who write about Job, they overlook this. He's not scolded by God like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He's not. He mentions each of their names or at least says they're three friends you're three friends uh, I am not my anger burns against your three friends well why not four friends why not against Elihu because Elihu actually said what was right 
He said what was right. That should be an interesting... That should be a help to you as you're going through the book. Because Elihu is setting up for what we should say before God comes on the scene. He's basically doing what Job should have done. He's the example of what Job should have been. Okay. We good on that so far? That's authorship. Hopefully I've made the case that Elihu is the author here. I think it's important because it helps you to shape a little bit better what's going on in the book. All right. Let's get to the audience. Who is the audience? Well, a lot of times when you write something in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it's written to Israel. Yes? Are we dealing with an audience that's basically talking to Israel? Well, if we're talking about an early story and an early writing, it would be difficult to say that this is just for Israel because Israel isn't that big. And this is in a land that's not really close. I mean, it is, but it's outside of the land of Israel that God promised to Abraham and to his children. And so those children are still probably growing up. And we might be in the era, and we'll get to this in a second, but in the era of uh, Jacob's time, perhaps, maybe Isaac's time. So it's just Israel is perhaps not a great... Uh, case for the audience perhaps maybe we could just say then it's limited just to the patriarchs maybe the patriarchs are the audience uh, but that's again such a small group of people I would argue that this is actually written and there's a very good reason why this is actually written to the world to everyone this is written to the world And the reason why I would argue this is, one, the terminology, as I talked about, borrows from many different languages, not just from Hebrew. There are a lot of isms, Aramaicisms, and Ugaritic-isms, and uh, Arabic even occurs a little bit. It's not that it's actually written with the Arabic text in the text. It's that Hebrew borrows these terms and then transliterates them into their language and, and uses them. There's a lot of double dipping and triple dipping into other languages here. That's important. That plays a significant role. Job is really asking the questions in this book that everyone in the world should be asking because everyone's fate rides on what Job is talking about. That's also a compelling reason why he's writing to the world. Job's focus, you can see this, is not really on Israel. His focus is not on Israel. The old covenant, which doesn't really exist yet, I would argue. The Levitical system, which doesn't exist yet either. His focus isn't on that. He doesn't even really bring up any of the covenants, like the Abrahamic covenant. Or the Davidic covenant, because the Davidic covenant doesn't exist yet. His situation mirrors the situation of any person who suffers in this world. It mirrors any person. So it's speaking to everyone. It's speaking to everyone. All right. That is... That is the the uh, the where, or excuse me, what are we dealing with? The who, sorry, the who. <laughs> All right, now the when. Let's talk about the when. 
The question then, and we've already talked a little bit about this, is it late, such as during the Solomonic period, during Solomon's time, during David's time, or even in between from Moses to David or Moses to Solomon? Or is it early, such as literally written during its historical setting? right after perhaps the event, or maybe toward the end of Job's life it was written. That's probably what I would argue is probably toward the end or right after he died, it was, this was penned and this was written. So that would be between 1800 to 1500 BC, if you can't read that up on the screen there, 1800 to 1500 BC, roughly the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not, not, in Israel or, or pre-national Israel, but within an area known to the Israelites. So in other words, it probably wasn't penned in the land of Canaan, but probably penned in the land of Uz or Uts, and probably penned by Elihu, who lived there. And there's a lot of reasons why we would take this early view, actually. The the conversation talks a lot about wealth and currency measured just like the patriarchs talk about their wealth and their currency. In fact, uh, turn your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 26. I know this is kind of an interesting fact, but I think it's really interesting. I think there's a direct and intentional connection here. Job 26, verse 14. Job 26, verse 14. This is talking about Isaac. Isaac is becoming a very rich man. That's what verse 13 talks about. He's becoming great. Very, very great. Verse 14. And it says that he had livestock of sheep and livestock of cattle and very many servants. And even the Philistines were jealous of him. Then, if you go over to Job... Chapter 1. Job chapter 1. You may have had your finger there, so it might be hopefully a quick, a quick flip over there. Job chapter 1, verse 3. Now Job had, notice what it says, 7,000, his livestock were 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of, of cows or, or oxen, you could say, and 500 female donkeys and very many servants. The terminology there, there are multiple terms that are exactly identical to what was said in Genesis 26 about Isaac. I mean, let alone, they're probably in the same time period. The fact that these two men are actually talked about with the exact same thing. You've got two men is almost like um, wealthy, wealthy sentinels, almost, you could say, in the ancient Near East at that time. Also, with related to the date, he has no knowledge of Israel, no mention of the Levitical system, etc. So we've already talked about that. He's depicted as an early king. This is interesting. His, the terminology there, and I read it for you in chapter 1, verse 3. Um, I guess at the end I didn't read that part. And that man was greater than all the sons of the east. That is kingly terminology. 
Job is being presented to us as though he is almost like a king. Now they didn't, in that era, we're still post flood, early post flood. So they didn't have necessarily like very well established nations with a king like sitting on a throne. That wasn't quite there in every place yet. And so you have what are like these huge family groups that take over these territories and some of the wisest um, and the wealthiest rise to the top of these groups. Mostly they're related to each other in these family groups. And that is where Job sits, at the top of the top in these huge family groups in the ancient Near East. He also acts like a priest in verse 5 with or toward his children offering sacrifices for them which was not done as a um, mosaic Levitical priesthood way but was done kind of like Melchizedek probably would have done so we're dealing with those who are faithful to Yahweh, listen, after the, the Levitical system has started, the only way to be faithful to Yahweh is to offer sacrifices through the Levitical system. Prior to that, it was acceptable to offer sacrifices to God kind of in your own way to, to, a, to a degree. So that's how he and Melchizedek fit together. And so they may have lived around the same time. As I talked about, there's a lot of proto-Hebrew terminology. Um, oops, I went. I didn't. Min, I didn't write that one in here. Sorry. Um, there's a lot of proto-Hebrew terminology. Um, oh no, I skipped one. That's what it is. Sorry. He lived 140 years. He lived 140 years after he suffered. So some theorize that perhaps because God doubled for him everything, they may have, he may have doubled his lifespan too. So maybe he was 70 year, years old when he started suffering, and then he gave him 140 years, which is double that. That's conjecture. But if anything, he's definitely going way beyond what people lived to even during David's time and Solomon's time. His lifespan fits that of a patriarch. Uh, now I can talk about proto-Hebrew terminology. There we go. But we've already talked about that. There is a lot of terminology in here that goes even prior to uh, langu- languages that are prior to Hebrew, which existed in some shape or form. And then, of course, what we've already talked about as well is the locations, the people, um, even Sheva is mentioned uh, in the book. In uh, chapter 1, verse 15, which you can compare that with Genesis chapter 25, verse 3. Hopefully, most of that's readable. And of course, I send out the PowerPoint, so if you're struggling to read those, you can always consult that as well and let me know if you didn't receive them for some reason. Okay, so that would be why we would understand this book to be a little bit earlier and not to be later. Okay, so that's the win. I may pull back here for a second because I want this to be a time where you can ask questions if you need. Do you have any questions on what we've talked about so far? Does that make sense? Good? Yeah, uh-huh. So, Elihu, is he, like, is he giving his commentary or writing into what he perceives from the story of Job that's been told? 
Yes. He, so he's not at the time. Well, he, so he's not actually one of the characters in the book. He is. His commentary. Well, I mean. Yeah. He's giving his commentary on the story that he knows about. Yeah, he's a little bit more of an outside figure, okay. but he does play into the story too. So he does. It, most of the book is him being an eyewitness to hear what was being said between the, the three friends and Job. Okay, so he's yeah. not just commenting on this, the, the verbal story right. of Job. He's commenting on what he actually heard. Yes, That's exactly. Yeah, okay. He would be just like, um, just like Matthew or John um, who wrote the Gospels because they were eyewitnesses of those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that means we can even his his testimony is trustworthy as well. Okay. Yep. And it was given. You're saying then in actual time. Right. To Job and the other three that were there. Yes. The. Um, yes, I think I understand what you're saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was given to them in that time. He was there in that time, able to hear it, and then you know, arguably. He's inspired by God. So to remember those things, uh, it's very possible that he wrote that whole conversation down. He may have even been the scribe that wrote it down as they were talking, right? That, that, that could be the case, right? Um, and, you know, this is one of those things that these men are, Job doesn't hang out with idiots, okay? This is really important, okay? He doesn't hang out with just dumb people. If he's the wealthiest, one of the wisest men on the earth, his three friends are also, that's really important. We tend to like throw them to the wayside. These guys are dumb. Yes, did they do wrong things? They did very wrong things, but they are not dumb. They are able to, on the fly, argue intelligibly and do it artistically. And it's like writing a song at the same time as doing a legal case. It's like, wow, that's incredible. And they're doing that back and forth with each other. And... I would argue that um, Elihu, it's, they're probably not the only people there. They probably have servants there and so forth. They're probably recording these things as they go. And then Elihu takes that and compiles um, the account later on and pieces it all together. That's what I would argue is probably happening. So, yeah, does that answer your question? Or is that, okay, yeah, that's a great, great question. Yeah. Hey, was he the last one to speak? God. Yes, yes. Yeah, Elihu was the last one. So Job doesn't even speak. So it's actually Job finishes his words, then Elihu speaks, and then God shows up. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, kind of like John the Baptist or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that would probably be the only one. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, probably just Job. Um, because after that, the earliest books would be Genesis to Deuteronomy, and, and those were written by Moses. So, yeah. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, last time you said that it, when interpreting a book, it helps to look at how the other authors of the Bible interpret this section. Right. right. So in Ezekiel and James, they both use it in the sense of this long suffering steadfastness. Yes. Right? Yes. And so we talked about how suffering is not just the only It's not the only theme. theme. Yes. Right. It's another main theme. There is. But it is a significant thing. They're driving at it. Yeah. It's a point in the New Testament. That's the point for us. Yes. That's an excellent observation. Um, What is the book of James really about? This is what's really cool. It's about 
wisdom. Yes? Job endured because it granted him wisdom. I'm going to argue Job is really about wisdom. We'll talk about that later. But yes, that's excellent. Yes, good. Any other questions? Okay, good. All right, let's keep going. Um, Where? We're running out of time. Cool. Um, It's okay. We've got two parts for this, though. It's going to work. Probably written and t- probably written and took place in the land of Uz, or if you want to go with the Hebrew pronunciation, Uts. Uh, east of Israel, we see that terminology. I already read it in verse three, chapter one, verse three. He's greater than all the sons of the east. You got to understand when you're thinking from a Hebrew standpoint. By this point, Abraham has already in the land. It's very clear that his descendants, Elihu's one of them, probably uh, they understand. Everything with reference to the land of Canaan. So eastward of Canaan would probably be eastward of, uh, well, Uz being east, right? Sons of the east would probably be east of Canaan. That's, that's what I think is being referenced here. We're also dealing with an era that is post-flood. And I've already talked about how there's a setting up there of families and tribes and nation groups, but not necessarily full-on nations uh, that have kings sitting on thrones and that kind of a thing. Uh, we also mentioned how he's like the wealthiest man of his time. This would be kind of similar to like the being like the owner of Walmart or something. Or being Bill Gates or Elon Musk. Except he's godly and loves the Lord. But it would be like one of those guys today. You're sitting on top of the world... Uh, but imagine like a really godly man, one of the godliest men of this era, being super rich and having having all of these connections to everybody. And be, because you're literally trading with everybody, and you're doing business with everyone, and and people are borrowing from you because they need money and they need help and and you're 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 interacting with them that is what is going on here with job a uh, few notable men have actually lived who we know of in the bible up to this point which means this sets us up well for the fact that the plan of god is on the verge but has not yet fully been accounted or, or recounted i should say uh, in other words <coughs> The stage of the world is set for the opening act of the Bible. That's what Job is doing. It's setting up the opening stage for the Bible. This is really one of the most epic books in the entire Bible. And I really hope that you come away with this. Maybe not today, but next week when we cover the second half. But now let's get into the why. This is my favorite of all of the... Um, diagnostic questions that I use here. We've got the who, the where, the when, but now the why. Let's talk about why. Why was this book written? Well, I've already talked about one thing specifically, and it is that there is a motif. Again, it's not quite the main theme. Oops, I went too far. It's not quite the main thing, but who is the true enemy? Who is the true enemy? I've got the, the Hebrew name for Job up there. Pronounced Eov. Eov. Who is the true enemy? This is the many theme in the book. And you'll see this word actually occur at a couple points in the book. All right, now we're going to camp on somewhere here for a moment. There's another point here, which is, who is man? And I put the word spy, that you spy on him, okay? 
Turn your Bibles over to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. Oh, this is where it gets really good. This is a famous psalm. You should know this psalm pretty well, perhaps. O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 4. What does it say? What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you take care of him or visit him? Visit him for good is the implication there. What is man that you remember him? Now, have your finger there. You can keep it there for a second. Well, you don't have to, but uh, it's just comparing these two. Go over to Job chapter 7, verse 17. Let's have someone read this verse. Whenever you get there, you take a reader. What is man that thou doest magnify him, and thou that thou art concerned about him? Yeah, exactly. Whoa, those sound really similar, don't they? So who wrote, which one came first? Job. So David, when he writes this, is depending upon who? Job. That's important. And what's incredible is that Job is saying it in complaint. Why are you, as um, Dr. Chow says when he talks about his lectures in Job, why are you picking on me? Why are you picking on me? Why do you spy on me? Why do you trouble me? Why do you entertain notions about me and have plans against me? Why are you thinking so much about me? I wish you did not put so much pressure on me, God, that you would put too much thought on me, O oh God. But you see, Job doesn't what? Have the whole story. He doesn't have the whole story. David has more of the story later. What does he say? O oh Lord, what is man that you take thought of him? What is man that you take thought of him? Why do you come and condescend and bless us? See how things change? Because you have divine revelation. You have more understanding. This is what Job is getting you prepared for. It is to be prepared to to understand the need for divine revelation. It's preparing you for that. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. <coughs> Romans chapter 3. Verse 20. Right before we get to like the full explanation of the gospel. Verse 20. Therefore, or for this reason... No one will be justified by works of the law before him. 
For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay, so no one can be justified by the law or by works of the law. Verse 21, but now there's something different. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ toward all those who believe. There is no distinction for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But verse 24, they are what? justified freely by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There's justification. God can make somebody right. That's what justification is, right? Being made right. God can make someone right. Alright, turn over to Job. Chapter 9. Job chapter 9. This is after he's responding to Bildad. And it says in verse 1, So then Job answered and he said, Truly I know that this is so, but what? How can a man be what? Be made right with God. You see the burning question that's on Job's mind? There's actually a lot of questions on Job's mind. But one of those is what? How can someone even be made right with God? Because he's so lofty. He's so perfect. There's no way someone can attain to righteousness. And so he has this burning question that he has no answer to. But he has a strong desire and wish that he would know how this would be possible. Later on in chapter 9, it gets even more potent because he talks about there is no mediator between God and man. There is no mediator. That's in verse 33. Who can place his hand on one and the other. Who can place his hand on God at once, at one, at one time and at the same time put his hand on man. There's no one who can reconcile that gap. So then how can someone be made right before God? How is that possible? If only Job knew what? Romans 3. And that Jesus Christ would become man and still be God and place his hand on both and make man right. Job is setting up for the questions that you should be asking when you start reading your Bible. That's the whole point. If you think Job is again about suffering, you misunderstand because you're only thinking about Job 1 and 2 and the end of Job, which is usually what people think about when they think about Job. They think about the story part of it. They don't think about all of the conversation because the conversation is very complicated, isn't it? It's very, very complicated. And you have to work through it carefully because the main point of the book is not the suffering. It's that the suffering leads to the what? The questions. That's the main point of the book. It's the questions that are being asked. It's that suffering has heightened these questions to a point of full sincerity. You have to afflict someone to the greatest point so that they would have the greatest questions for all mankind to hear. That's what we need to be asking, these kind of questions. All right, and then finally... Turn over to Proverbs, and we're almost out of time, and I know I want to keep you too late. Proverbs chapter 2. 
Proverbs chapter 2. I love this. This is, I mean, there's a lot of favorite passages that I have, but this is one of them. (coughs) Proverbs chapter 2. This is Solomon referring to wisdom, being the wisest man on the earth of his day. Chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you shall receive my words and my commandments, you shall keep with you. So as to make your ear attentive to wisdom and stretching out your heart to understanding. For if you call out to insight or wisdom or understanding and to uh, insight, I guess you could say, you give out your voice. If you seek for her as for silver and you search for her as for hidden treasures, then what? Then you will understand what? The fear of Yahweh. Oh, this is telling you how to define the fear of Yahweh. And the knowledge of God you will find. For what? Verse 6. For Yahweh gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Turn over to Job chapter 28. Job 28. Oh, this is such a good, this is like an epic, um, epic moment in Job 28 because it's kind of reaching a climax in Job's, um, he's, he's, he gets like almost to his most vexed point and it gets very, um, the imagery gets incredible here. He uses this imagery of uh, someone who's, and this is what they used to do back then. You're like, oh, we're the only ones that are able to do that now because we have modern technology. They used to go deep down into the, into the earth and dig out this gold and all of these precious uh, jewels and so forth. They would pull these out of the earth. You know, how did they do that without modern technology? They did that. Somehow they did that. And he describes this as going down and trying to find all of these, these blessings that you can get from the earth, these rare things. And he says, it takes a lifetime of work and sweat, and you might even die in the process, but you can eventually find them. But his whole point is, but wisdom, you can't find. And you know why he says that? It's not because he's ignoring his Bible. It's because he what? Has no Bible. You understand the point? Verse 12. But as for wisdom, where can it be found? And where is the place of understanding? Verse 20, but as for wisdom, where could it come from? And where is the place of understanding? Verse 28, behold, what? The fear of the Lord. That is what? Wisdom. What does that mean then? This is really important. We'll end here. The fear of the Lord means that you're on the edge of your seat desperate for him to reveal it. That's the fear of the Lord. You're on the edge of your seat, waiting with all anticipation, putting all of your hope in the fact that he will somehow reveal that wisdom. Job is just waiting. I wish that I could talk with God face to face and get wisdom from him to get knowledge and understanding not just why is this all happening but it's elevated me to other questions that are even bigger like how can i be made right with god where what what is the whole plan of god to begin with is he just content occupying himself somewhere else and not dealing with us 
Does he not care about us? Or does he care so much that it's hurting us? It's afflicting us? He's troubling us? I don't have the answers to those questions because I have no knowledge from God. That is the point of the book. Is to help you set up for the fact what? You need the Bible. You need the Bible. You see how Job acts really well as the first book of the Bible? Because it's setting up for the fact, why do you need the Bible? Because these are the questions you should be asking. It's because God has revealed in his word the way things really are, but we cannot know them without his word. All right, that... Oh, let me just, uh, I know I said I'd finish this, but this is part of this. Um, sorry, I need to put these up here. I got, I got into it, and then I <laughs> let it go. All right, Job asks, this is the whole purpose. Job asks the most critical questions from a man in the most severe of suffering to introduce to the world how God will reveal his plan to make man right with him. That's what Job, that's why Job was written. That's the purpose of Job. Job asks the most critical questions from a man in the most severe case of suffering to introduce to the world how God will reveal his plan to make man right with him. The thing is, is that Job is not going to fully understand that. But that's the point. The point is not that he understands it. The point is that he fears God, so that he waits for God to reveal it. That is why it is so important that Job dies at the end of the book. Like, what? That sounds like such a downer, right? God blessed you a double, and then he dies, right? And it's like, wait, that doesn't... Why, why is it that he has to die? Because he finally gets his questions, what? Answered. He's not supposed to know the answers because he's supposed to fear God and wait for him. That's the whole point. And so we also must be desperate on the word, waiting on God. The good news is that what? You have a lot more answers than he did. So we got to be depending upon these like it's our life. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this um, opportunity that we've been able to invest ourselves into this very important book that sets up for the rest of the Bible. We pray that we would come away understanding that, but even more than that, that we would humble ourselves even more and recognize we need the Bible. It's an absolute necessity that it is our very life. And Lord God, we pray that we would understand its wisdom and that we would understand that even though all things have not yet been fully fulfilled and the second coming of Christ is not yet here, we wait with anticipation because we know that you have acted in history and you will act. But we will fear you and we will wait for you and we will hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in the service in a little bit.